Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 146. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. And in this episode, we're in an epic battle while milking cows from the comfort of our armchairs. So, another week, another Friday. Surely not. Oh, indeed. One of the driving forces behind the Apple II movement, Ashley Jovic, or Jovic if you're in Norway, was sacked on Friday. She's been very vocal in her criticism of Apple's handling of employee concerns. And Apple demanded her presence at a meeting on Friday. Notice, Friday. She politely requested that all communications be in writing. A sage move in my mind. And she's a law student, so clearly a wise move in her mind too. Apple? Well, they waited until the judgment in the epic saga was being made public and promptly fired her. What next? Well, I'll be surprised if this is the last we hear of this. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. And there's so much information coming out of these companies now, it needs dealing with. Google were the subject of a whistleblower complaint that it underpaid temp workers by as much as $100 million this week. So, expect it all to rumble on. You may recall Dropbox introduced a password service in June last year. They actually purchased a company called Vault as the basis for this initiative. And I did a demo of the app in MacBytes after I was 102. It was fairly primitive by comparison to 1Password, but it did the job. So a year on, surely they've taken the opportunity to improve the app. <laughs> Don't be silly. Why do that when you can simply bin it and tell the users to just install a Google Chrome extension instead? Yep, no more dedicated app on the desktop, just a browser extension. A browser extension instead of an app. Wow. What are users of other browsers that don't support Google Chrome extensions supposed to do? I have no idea. There's also the issue of situations where you need access to a password locally. In other words, not online, not in a browser. So when I'm configuring apps such as CloudMounter or Expand Drive, Perfect situation. I need access to my S3 password, OneDrive, Dropbox, Box, but not to log in to those services in a browser to enter into an app on my desktop. So what a waste of time having to fiddle in a browser. I think we're back to what's easier for the developers rather than what's best for the users. Or dragging everyone down to the lowest common denominator is how I'd describe it. And if you think that's bad, just wait till you hear the next one. When I started using computers, it was a brave new world. It was exciting. You had no option but to learn to program if you wanted your computer to do anything beyond blink a cursor at you. You strove to create code that would do the job that you needed doing. You iterated, you improved, you added features. And most of the developers out there were doing exactly the same, improving their apps and adding features in equal measure. Oh, they were great days. Now, coding practices improve, coding languages improve, your skill set improves. And there were times when it would have been easier to start a project from scratch again, completely rewrite the whole thing rather than drag suboptimal code into the future iterations of the app. In light of how we started, though, I seriously wonder how we've got to where we are now. And if you're wondering where we are now, let me explain. At some point, it became acceptable to completely trash an app and release a new version. The thing is, you can do that where the app has feature parity, but what we're talking about here is where the new version has fewer features. The most obvious example of this is Apple's Final Cut Pro a few years back. 
The stated intention back then was to add the missing features back, but as we know, that doesn't always happen, does it, Apple? The principle seems to be the 80-20 rule. 80% of people only using 20% of the features of an app. But the key issue here is, it's not always the same 20%, and therein lies the problem. You don't have to be an advanced user to miss one of those lost features either. The stuff that's missing is often so nuanced. Also, what of the 20% of people that use 80% of the features? So I'm wondering if the trash it and promise to add the features back later mentality is becoming a prelude to the app going subscription. Think about how subscriptions are pitched to us. A predictable and sustainable income for the developer and continued innovation and feature updates for the user. Fundamental question here. Would it be acceptable if a subscription app had features removed? And instinctively, my reaction was, are you kidding? Surely at a minimum, the subscription would need adjusting. So hold that thought as I share with you the latest news from Photoshop land. Adobe have pulled an entire section of the Photoshop feature set, namely the 3D features. These features were first added in 2012. They were considered to be so advanced that there was a dedicated version of Photoshop for them, Photoshop CS5 Extended. All the different subsets of Photoshop went away when it became subscription only. That was announced in May 2013. So given it is subscription and the object of the exercise is to add features, why would they remove existing features? Well, their explanation goes like this. And I quote, for technical reasons, Photoshop's 3D feature set will not reliably work in modern operating systems. And as of Photoshop 22.5, we're beginning the process of removing those features. A warning message will appear once a week if 3D features are used. They then continue, for a short time, a technology preview preference can be used to emulate the last known working state for 3D features. Note that this operating mode is increasingly unreliable in modern operating systems and we recommend using Photoshop version 22.2 released in December 2020 if you need more stable performance with Photoshop 3D features. So, basically, if you want to get anything done, use an old version. Until that stops working, of course. Come on, guys. If something becomes unstable, fix it. Look at the work rogue amoeba do every time Apple update macOS. Adobe seemed to be taking the Ambrosia software approach. When a macOS update broke their audio apps, they simply binned them, together with any goodwill that they had with the customers who were left with apps that no longer worked. Needless to say, Adobe users had questions. The number one question was, of course, when are you fixing it and bringing the 3D features back? And the answer to that? Again, I quote, Currently, we don't have any concrete plans to introduce advanced 3D features back into Photoshop. So, there you go. The future of software. Or not. It'll either be binned, refashioned as a browser extension, or rewritten in Electron. A sad state of affairs. Again, dragging everyone down to the lowest common denominator. The question that sprung to my mind was, they were not specific in terms of which operating system they were referring to. Oh, I wish we knew. But they did not mention it at all. But no changes to the operating system should impact long-term 
features within an application that have been there for the last nine years. And now you're just taking away, but still charging the same subscription. Naughty, naughty. Talking of broken tech. A story on the BBC News site rendered me speechless this week. Not all bad then. A lady had applied for planning permission to the local council here in the UK. It was on behalf of a charity that she represented, and the request was for retrospective planning permission for change of use of land that she owned. She wanted it changed from agricultural to animal rescue. So far, simple. Except the length of time it was taking. She'd already waited six months. Finally, the letter announcing the decision arrived. The council had refused the planning permission, which was bad enough, but the council had to give their reasons. And the letter did include two reasons. Reason one, your proposal is whack. Reason two, no mate, proper whack. Pardon, what department sent that out? Obviously, being of an age where I have no clue what whack means in this context, I head off to check. The dictionary is no help since, like me, it doesn't speak in some mongrel street language. The Urban Dictionary comes to the rescue, but only just, as it then wandered off somewhere none of us should be heading. But it seemed to all depend on your spelling of whack, with a H or without. Oh, H, we're getting all line of duty now. Anyway, in the adjudication, it was spelt with a H. Wrong. For the intended meaning, it would appear without is more accurate, and it means bad. Either way, what sort of wording was this for a legally binding document? The lady was horrified and asked the council what was going on, as did the rest of us. System error. Just a minute. That's not a system error. That has to be an operator error. No system is going to automatically use language like that. Plus the fact these decisions have to be made by the local planning committee. Well, it turns out they randomly took some real cases and added them to a test system. And then some snotty-nosed inarticulate YTS stroke intern proceeded to play with the system, taking it as far as actually sending out his ill-considered and inarticulate judgments to the applicants. The charity lady wasn't the only one with a highly inappropriate response given either. Other reasons on other applications included a request to demolish a pub was approved citing the justification as INSEE Wincy Spider. (laughs) It's just, it's beyond rationale, isn't it? A third application was approved with a rationale of, why am I doing this? Am I the chosen one? You might be chosen, mate, but you're illiterate. There was no question mark on that one, nor a comma in the right place either. An application to convert a farm outbuilding was refused with the reason given as, don't even bother reapplying, LOL. Not even joking, LMAO. Surely an apology and a swift resolution are in order and no harm done. Oh no, don't be silly. In true British fashion, it's a complete carve-up. These letters, despite clearly not being the legitimate outcome of the applications, are indeed legally binding. To be overturned, all parties need to attend court hearings at a cost of £8,000. The next time someone has the temerity to say something is a system error, remind yourself that the systems are only as good as the idiots that we let use them. It's human error, it's idiotic. You never mix live data with test data. And this is what happens when you try and shortcut doing it right. 
It's that new mantra of fail fast, fail often. I don't think so, especially not when it impacts the applicants, the council, the courts, the taxpayers, and the bottom line, £8,000 to fix it. The council should be carpeted for this. The courts want looking up for upholding them as valid determinations as well. It's like a runaway train that can't be stopped. Good job it wasn't even more serious. It actually reminded me of a letter that we received on behalf of my grandmother after her funeral. We'd done all the paperwork, etc. We'd arranged for the post to be forwarded from Grand's old house to ours. We received this letter from the council, addressed to my grandmother. Hold that thought, that's important. They were writing to my grandmother. They were informing her that she was entitled to a rebate of monies paid for local services. They then provided a reason in the paragraph below, and I quote, Because you are dead. I thought my mother was going to need gas and air when she read that one. Remember, it's not the tech, it's the idiots using it. You'll doubtless recall the epic Apple lawsuit from last year. I do believe my Down With The Cool Kids gaming speak has gone down in MacBytes folklore. Well, it finally reached a judgment on Friday. You're noticing this, Friday. Now, I can tell you what happened, but you'll get a completely different interpretation depending on which Apple site you read. In fact, if it's an Apple-related site, you'll read that Apple won. If it's not, you might find that Epic won. Seriously, not even joking here. Here are some actual headlines. Major win for Epic Games. Apple has 90 days to open up App Store payments. Then another one. Judge orders huge App Store changes in Epic Apple ruling. Followed by Epic Games to appeal the decision in the App Store lawsuit, as Apple calls it a huge win. Apple describes Epic Games ruling as a resounding victory for the App Store. Then, the Epic Apple ruling could put a serious dent in Apple's $19 billion App Store business. Apple bests Epic, but change is coming to the App Store. And probably the most accurate, Apple and Epic both lost today. The pertinent quote from that article being, what happened today, both sides lost, but Epic arguably lost more. So what actually happened? The judge ruled that whilst Apple is not a monopolist, it cannot stop developers from linking to other payment mechanisms in their apps. The judge ruled in favour of Apple regarding the breach of App Store contract. She ordered Epic to pay Apple 30% of the $12.1 million for money earned between August and October 2020 and 30% of any revenue earnings from November 2020 until the day of the judgment. The judge also reiterated the court's ruling that Apple's decision to terminate the Epic Games developer account was lawful. So back to the quote. Apple and Epic both lost today. The only winners in litigation are the lawyers. I thought we all knew that. Many years ago as a young law student, I visited the oldest bookshop in London, around in Dickens Day, Wildy's Legal Bookshop. As I was leaving the undergraduate department, a sketch above the door caught my eye. It was entitled The Litigation Cow. There was a cow in the middle with two litigants, one at either end. One was clinging to the head while the other was grasping the tail. An analogy for a civil law case if ever I saw one. But the interesting and accurate point was perfectly made when I spotted the lawyer in the artwork, seated on a stool, milking the cow. The only winners once litigation starts are the lawyers. Do these companies never learn? I despair at times. Ooh, a hardware review. 
I have a long history with headphones. I have fond memories of the first pair I received as a gift. They were from a UK store called Boots. I doubt the sound would hold up well against more contemporary devices, but I can assure you the build quality would have done. They weighed a ton. Which brings me to the first pair of headphones that I bought for my Mac back in 2006. Sennheiser HD 212 Pro. The sound was fantastic. They were comfy for hours. You could replace the pads. They were perfect except for the cable, which was hardwired into both sides and it was just far too thin. When one cable started to die, you had the Norman Collier style sound. And that was before it completely died and you were rendered stone deaf on one side. There was no way to repair the thing because where the cable met the casing, it was plastic. Soldering wouldn't have been the best idea I've ever had, put it like that. Nor back then were they Bluetooth, but it was 2006. Since I had about four pairs of them, I did actually manage not to have to think about finding anything to replace them until about 2013, which was when the last pair died. They were finally laid to rest with suitable ceremony. And since then, I've had several Bluetooth enabled headphones, some with the added benefit of being cabled as well. And my favourites were a pair of Sound Surge 46 noise cancelling Bluetooth headphones from Taytronics. Catchy name. Now, given the original price of £88 and I got them in a sale for only 45 I didn't actually expect them to be anything spectacular, but I was blown away. And I would still happily be using them now, but for one thing, which isn't actually a showstopper, except aesthetically. The pads split, revealing the inner foam. Sadly, the pads can't be replaced and the model is no longer made. So I was in the market for a new pair of headphones. They were going to have to be something special to even equal the Taytronics, much less surpass them. Again, I spotted a potential replacement in a sale. A brand I'd bought before, One Audio. The previous One Audio pair was an inexpensive wired model. I actually think I potentially bought them for my father. So that would have been about 2013. But the sound was good, so I took advantage of the sale and they were soon on their way. The ones that I got are the One Audio A30 model. So they do have Bluetooth. I would say they take fractionally longer to activate the Bluetooth. But once you hear the voice confirming that they're turned on, then the connection is absolutely instant. Also, that voice, don't know about you. The voices on Bluetooth headphones drive me insane. <laughs> Some of them are just so robotic or oh, screechy, horrible. Horrible. Uh, this one's really acceptable. By comparison to some of the other ones I've heard, it's quite neutral and muted, which is quite important. They are DJ style headphones in terms of the cable. So there is a detachable cable, which is great on many levels. For me, it means I can change the colour. So what comes with it is black, but I prefer a red cable. I know it's indulgent, but if it's black, I tend to trip up over it, which I don't know how I manage because at six foot, it hardly touches the floor. But trust me, I do. So I do like a red cable. You can also change the length of the cable. So you could have three, four, five cables, all of different lengths that you can just plug in and out. I actually don't plug these into the computer or into the large box that I have on the floor that attaches to my speakers. I have a cable 
that goes where it needs to go. And it's just an extension cable. So I can actually plug the cable in and change the cable without all the associated climbing all over the place, which is another reason to have different lengths of cables available. It also means that should the cable break, you can buy a new one, which is how come I've ended up with a fabric red cable and not a cleanable cable that I prefer. Because while there were other cables that were that kind of rubberized texture, uh, no, I ended up with a fabric one. But it's fine. I'll replace it when it gets dirty. That was my logic when I bought it. And having had so many headphones where the headphones were fine, but the cable went, that's a really useful feature. Now, once you plug the cable in, it automatically disconnects the Bluetooth. And using it cabled, you don't need battery power. Now, they also have active noise control, also known as noise cancellation, which reduces the unwanted sound by the addition of a second sound specifically designed to cancel the first. I am always highly sceptical about noise reduction, but these are fabulous. Throughout the summer, I've been sat in front of my industrial sized fan and these headphones, they do a fantastic job. In terms of control buttons, you've obviously got on and off, play and pause, forward and backward and volume up and volume down. I tend to steer away from control buttons. Do you know why? I'm always pressing the wrong ones. That wouldn't matter, I don't think, in terms of volume up, volume down wouldn't be an issue, but forward and back. Forward and back is a nightmare if you're listening to audiobooks because you're like, I'm now totally lost where I am in this book. Whereas if it's with a song, you know, you can just go back and think, yeah, that's the one I'm looking for. Much more difficult with an audiobook. Build quality is great. They are nicely padded. I can't say how long they'll last, but they're certainly comfortable now and they are comfortable for hours on end. At the weekend, I would have them on for four to five hours in a live show. Sound quality, absolutely excellent. Rich and deep for music, a lovely tone for audiobooks. And as I mentioned, I use them on Brooklyn's 196 by request music shows. So they are on for a long time and the sound is great. Accessories wise, it comes with a DJ cable with it. I have no idea how long that is. I've not even used it. What I will say about the cable that comes with it, I think it's an anti-tangle cable. It's one of those that doesn't actually curl up nicely on the desk. It kind of twangs. But as I say, that cable is black and I don't particularly use it. There's also an airplane adapter. I had no idea what that actually was, since I think Wilbur Wright was the pilot the last time I flew anywhere. So thank you to Renee for informing me of the function for that little device. There's also a carry case in the box. It's a nice soft material and the headphones being DJ style fold up to fit inside the carry case. The instructions are quite tiny. You're going to need a magnifying glass, but fairly self-evident. And there's a little book in there with them. Price wise, $53.99 or around $49.99, depending on where you buy them from. This is where they have the edge over the other way more expensive alternatives. They are amazing for the price. Actually, they're better than headphones I've paid a lot more for. So details in the show notes. Check them out if you're in the market for a nice pair of headphones at a reasonable price. As I was sitting listening to radio commentary on Cristiano Ronaldo's second Manchester United debut because I couldn't find any live TV coverage or legal streams, I reflected on how technology has allowed me to keep up to date with live matches. And I don't mean how my watch buzzes before I see the ball hitting the back of the net. 
Today I'm going to talk about some of the fun and frustrating times I've had trying to watch live games on TV, mobile and iPad. Hence the term armchair supporter. I'll start with satellite broadcaster Sky TV. Apart from the World Cups and domestic finals, live football didn't hit television screens in the UK until 1960. But in 1992, when Sky won the rights to broadcast live and on-demand Premier League games, it became, in their own words, a whole new ball game. I've got fond memories of how I came to own a Sky TV system. How did that happen, I wonder? Well, handily, in 1991, I moved into my own place. I turned up at Old Trafford to watch a reserve match, hoping and praying that you'd be there. We weren't together at that point. Anyway, you were, and we got talking tech. And what did you say? I merely mentioned that the way to a girl's heart would be through a satellite dish. Within the week, certainly by the next match, the deal was done. I'd bought the system and arranged for installation on the way to the match, if memory serves me right, and then showed you the receipt, which I just happened to have in my pocket. Oh, you know how to woo a girl, don't you? As well as needing the satellite dish fixed to the outside of the flat, I also needed a Sky set-top box, so-called because they're designed to sit on top of a TV. Although in my case, it was under the TV box, living on a shelf under my TV. The box contained the technology to send the signal received by the dish to the TV. Now, to watch the games, I had to subscribe to the Sky Sports package, which was £5.99 a month. Compare that to the £25 a month I'm paying now, and that's with a discount. Full price is £33 a month. Having said that, in 1992, there were far fewer channels and much less live and exclusive content. At that time, most of the content was free to air. But live matches were encrypted, so you needed a Sky card to watch them. It was a plastic card about the size of a credit card, and you put it into a slot at the front of the box. Great thing was, it wasn't paired to that box. So, when you got a Sky dish, I'd bring my card around to yours so that we could watch the game with your mum and dad. I do remember in the early 90s, staying in a hotel, I was doing some on-site training and United were playing in a cup game. I left my Sky card with you so that you could watch it, and my priority when booking a hotel was whether they had Sky. I found a hotel that did, I booked it, I had my dinner when I got there, settled down to watch the match, and I could hear the commentary but no picture. And the screen had random flickering dots, better known as TV snow. I'm sure you've seen that yourselves. I thought there was something wrong with the TV, so I kept thumping it, thinking that the internal receiver just needed a nudge. Nope, the game was encrypted. It turned out, when I asked at reception, they did have Sky, but not Sky Sports. Then, in the late 90s, On Digital won exclusive rights to screen every match from the UEFA Champions League. And to watch the games, you needed a box. Yes, another box, another subscription. If you've ever heard us talk about the monkey box, that's what we were talking about. The service was advertised by English comedian Johnny Vegas, accompanied by a talking stuffed monkey. A sort of alpha of MacBite Siri, I guess. Anyway, we used to have date nights on a Wednesday, so I'd bring the box to yours, so we could watch the game together. How romantic. 
If you're wondering why date night was at yours, the TV reception at my flat was poor. So poor, in fact, that I had to buy a better aerial, which I put in the loft rather than attach it to the outside of the flat. So another work-related trip, another hotel stay, another European night. And not wanting to miss the game, what did I do? Yes, I took the monkey box and the aerial with me. What must I have looked like lugging an aerial through a hotel? And then to top it off, I could only get one channel and they were showing the Leeds United match. In the end, on digital went into administration and the monkey box, well, that was consigned to the tip. In June 2002, we spent a weekend in Brighton. We had press and access all areas VIP passes for a beach soccer tournament that Eric Cantona was playing in. But June 2002 was also when the World Cup was being played. England were playing Sweden at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. And as the beach soccer games weren't kicking off until the afternoon, the VIP and press area wasn't open. And we couldn't stay in the hotel. So how did we watch the game? Well, we sat in the car with your miniature pocket TV with its built-in pull-out aerial and two-inch screen. Don't laugh, that was state-of-the-art at the time and certainly didn't need a porter's trolley to get it to the hotel room. So, roll on a few years, the iPhone had launched and Sky, sensing another revenue-generating opportunity, launched another subscription. The Sky Sports mobile app costs £4.99 a month and it was paid via iTunes. And it didn't require a full Sky subscription, which by that time was around £30 a month. So we ditched the full Sky subscription and paid the £4.99 monthly fee instead. Through the app, I was able to watch all the live games shown by Sky. But unfortunately, that experience didn't last. The service got progressively worse. The app would continually freeze and crash, usually just as the match was about to start. And even when the iPad was launched, there was no dedicated iPad version. And Sky finally sunsetted the service in July this year. Luckily, there's an alternative, Now TV, or as we call it at MacBuy's headquarters, Now TV. Now TV, or Now as it's now called, is a Sky-owned subscription-based streaming service that offers movies, TV series and sports, live and on demand. Even before Sky announced the demise of Sky Sports Mobile, I'd started using Now instead. They offered a sports pass for £5.99 a month. It gave me access to five Sky Sports channels, including Sky Sports Premier League, which is the one that shows the live games. Like Sports Mobile, it's iPhone and Android only. The subscription was paid monthly and in May this year, after the season finished, I stopped paying. My plan was to start paying again in August when the new season started. Imagine my shock when I went to the Now website to renew my subs a few weeks ago to find that the £5.99 package was no longer available. They now offer two packages, day membership at £9.99, which gives you access to all 11 channels for a 24-hour period from the time you started watching, or month membership at £33.99. Yes, think about that. I was paying £5.99 for a month, and this is £33.99 for a month, although it is currently available for £25 a month. It does give you access, however, to all 11 Sky Sports channels for a month from the time that you start watching. 
And unlike the Sky Sports mobile package and the £5.99 Now package, you can use it on multiple devices, iPhone, iPad and computer via the Now Player. But you can only watch on one device at a time. Although if you pay for Now Boost, which is another service costing another £5 a month, you can stream on three devices at once. Now, if you're thinking that one way around the one device limitation is screen sharing, don't bother, it doesn't work. Nor that we deliberately set out to beat the system. But last week, I was watching a United game on my Mac. I had the Now Player on one screen and something else on my other screen. I was multitasking as usual. And I asked you a question, nothing to do with football. It was about whatever was on my other screen. And you said, just a minute, let me connect to your machine, which you do regularly using Apple Remote Desktop. And as soon as you connected, the Now Player went grey and lost the picture. So obviously some built-in anti-screen sharing technology that we accidentally discovered. But Sky aren't the only kid in town when it comes to broadcasting live matches. There's the BBC, there's ITV, there's Amazon and BT Sport. And apart from BBC and ITV, the others charge a subscription. So if you want to watch all the games, it's going to cost you a small fortune. Although we get the games broadcast by Amazon as part of our Prime subscription, we do have to pay if we want the other subscriptions. BT Sport have an exclusive deal with UEFA to show all the Champions League games. The Premier League games are split between Sky, BT Sports and Amazon, and those broadcasters don't choose which games they're going to show until five or six weeks beforehand. So in addition to a monthly subscription of £25 to Sky via Now, I'm also paying £25 a month for BT Sport. But at least with that one, I can watch on three devices at the same time, which means that we can both watch the game. Talking of BT Sport, they seem to have deployed some anti-screenshot technology in their mobile app. I simply wanted to take some screenshots of the crowd a couple of weeks ago when I was watching a game on my iPad, except the screenshots came out totally black. Screenshotting worked in other apps, so I assume it must be something in that app. In the end, I watched the game on my Mac in a browser and recorded it with Camtasia. So that's my look at how watching football from the comfort of my own home, although not necessarily in my armchair, or whilst on the road, whether it be working, dog walking, or attending formal dinners, but we won't go into that one, has evolved over the years. So time for part three of our Vivaldi series. And I promise this time I'd be looking at web panels. Buckle up for an exciting ride. Web panels are customisable tabs hosted in a sidebar. Now, when I say customizable, there's also five built in web panels. So these are Vivaldi specific and they provide access to specific Vivaldi functions. The first of these is bookmarks. In essence, the sidebar gives you access to all the bookmarks that you have in Vivaldi. It allows you to manage them, move them, rename them, search them, you name it. Then there is the web panel for downloads. So all the downloads that you've downloaded within Vivaldi are listed in this panel. It's perfect for monitoring the progress because you get a progress bar as things are downloading. And it's a great place to access the files once the downloads are completed, because double clicking on a download that has completed in there will open it up. So if you've downloaded a zip file, it will open the zip file on zip it for you. 
of more use in that downloads panel is if for whatever the reason you need to pause a download, you can do it from there. If you then need to restart a download, you can do it from there. Also, if you've moved a file or maybe even deleted a download, while you've deleted the file, you won't have deleted the record that that file was downloaded in Vivaldi. So if you go and you search your history and you find this record for the download that you can no longer find, you're able to just with one click restart the download and re-download it. It's fantastic. Another panel is the browsing history panel. And this gives you access to all the recently closed pages. And the pages are searchable both by title and using a configurable date range. There's five preset date ranges and a custom option. It would be very difficult not to be able to find a page that you visited and now need to revisit. If you hover over any of the entries in the history, it gives you additional information regarding that page. It truly is a great way to locate something that you can no longer remember the direct link to. Vivaldi also has a built-in note system and it has a web panel to access these notes. So the notes panel hosts the notes, allowing access to both the web pages that you're referencing and the notes that you choose to make about them. So because the web panel sits to one side or other of your browser, you've got the main window where your information is. But if you want to take some notes, you have this panel to do so. And it's not just typewritten notes either. If you want to highlight some text and right click, it will give you the option to create a new note. But rather than just add the text to the note, it will also take a screenshot to provide you the full context of the text that you've captured. It truly is amazing. The fifth built in web panel is the Windows panel. Now, in addition to multiple tabs, Vivaldi supports multiple windows, like many browsers. The Windows panel provides a searchable, hierarchical navigation of all the pages that are open in the current window. Now that might seem redundant because you've got tabs. So you can navigate between tabs in a specific window just by clicking the tab. Well, what makes the window panel better is it's collapsible into folders. So if you have pin tabs, they're separate and can be folded up. And it also makes all the open tabs searchable with a search field and sortable. And the thing with the sortable bit is I initially thought if I sort these alphabetically, it's going to move my tabs. But no, it only does it within the Windows web panel. So it's a fantastic way, again, to search through your open tabs to find a tab that you're specifically looking for. And if you, for whatever reason, do want to go through your tabs alphabetically, you can do that as well. And they're just the built in options. There's also the ability to have completely customized web panels. Now, those custom web panels are really opening a URL and showing you that URL in a sidebar. The width of the sidebar can be tweaked. So while some sites work perfectly in a narrow view, you can make it half the width or more of your browser if you choose. So you're putting a URL in and that site will be loaded into the panel. What makes something perfect for a web panel? Here's a few ideas for you. Making notes. Now, there is the Vivaldi notes panel, and that's where you will save Vivaldi notes. But if you're ever forced to work cross browser, then having notes locked within Vivaldi, not the best idea. 
what you can do with a web panel is host as many different note services as makes sense for you. So the one that I tend to use for cross-browser use is Google Keep because I don't use Google Keep for anything else. So initially for me, I have zero notes in Google Keep. But if I'm working on a project and I need to work cross-browser and I want to have some information available cross-browser, then I will put it in my Google Keep web panel. Then when I go to another browser, I can do exactly the same in there and I have access to that information. But it also works no matter which note service you use. So I also have tabs for Rome and Notion because they're what I use most of the time. But if you use Microsoft OneNote or SimpleNote or even Evernote, you could have all of them or whichever makes sense to you open in a web panel and each web panel would be dedicated to one of those services. It truly is such a flexible way of working. It's amazing. I also create a productive environment with my web panels. As many of you know, I host a music based radio show every Saturday night. And managing all of the tools that I need, the windows, the services, it would just be impossible if it weren't for a couple of Vivaldi features. So I host two chat services together with a playlist in a Google spreadsheet and email in another tab, all in a single view. And that's made possible with two features, web panels and tiled pages, which we'll look at in an upcoming part of this series. So the web panels host the Brooklyn's 196 chat at brooklyns196.com. So all I need to do is make a web panel that points to brooklyns196.com, scroll down and there is the chat. And the second one is a dedicated web panel to host WhatsApp. And then all I need to do is flick between the two chats to access them both. Another thing that I use a custom web panel for is to create flow. You know, that ambience to work by thing. Well, I've got a service called Focus at Will and it provides upbeat or even very relaxing music to work by. Previously, it would have to be open in a dedicated tab which, you know, it's not that arduous, but I am still sat there staring at the tab name with all of my other tabs. But with a web panel, I point it at focus at will. I start the music that I want and I close the panel. Music carries on and I've got no distractions looking at it. It is its genius. Other uses for that web panel? Well, I don't do this, but that's just me. But you could put Twitter in there. You could put Facebook in there. You know, if keeping in touch 24-7 is your thing. I tend to ring fence those things. In fact, I only access Facebook in Firefox. Firefox has this amazing extension called containers and um, it makes sure that Facebook doesn't track me anywhere. So while Vivaldi probably could do that, I'm used to using Firefox. So if I say to myself, you know, I'm only going to use Facebook in Firefox, I automatically throughout the day don't even think of opening Facebook because I'm in Vivaldi and I'm not in Firefox. So there you have it. One of my favourite features in Vivaldi, web panels. Next time, I'm going to look at bookmarks. And before you think bookmarks, boring. Oh, no. There is so many ways to access bookmarks, so many ways to manage them and so many extra features no other browser has. So that's all for next time. Don't forget the MacBytes live coverage of the great Apple event tomorrow, tomorrow being the 14th of September. If you're doing a MacBytes marathon in the future, it's currently 2021. So we're California streaming live from 5 p.m. UK time. 
And you will find us at backbites.fm. Yes, I know. That means a whole glorious hour for you to share your pre-show thoughts. Then live chat during the keynote itself, followed by post-keynote chat. Don't forget treats to sustain you through a potentially glorious session. The MacBytes bit will be glorious, but we make no promises regarding the Apple bit. But we will see you there. And then on Friday, we have MacBytes After Hours. We will have all the usual fun and games together with the demos and the deep dives. We'll be going live at 9pm UK time. So do join us. It wouldn't be the same without you. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Just go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. Thank you, Alexa. What are you two up to? I've just ordered a few things. Like what? Like a lovely low-level stool. Oh, and a cow. I ordered a cow. A cow? Yes, a cow. She answers to the name of Ermintrude. What on earth did you buy a cow for? For two reasons. Go on then, because I can't even think of one reason. One. It will stop them moaning about not being able to get milk delivered during these shortages. I can't argue with that logic. 2. I figure it will stop them squabbling over us. They can argue about who's having custody of Ermintrude instead. Good point. I'll help you unpack. (coughs) 